Hello, and welcome to Talk. My name is Laura Beckert, and I am the Executive Director of Healthcare Voter. And also, healthcare is a very personal subject for me because about five years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer, and I went through the medical system, including uh, denied treatments, surprise medical bills, uh, refused authorizations, and more. So uh, we're here to answer your questions about healthcare and health insurance in America and help you get the answers you need. So please call and text in your questions and we will get you answers in future shows. Our first question today is from Jean, who wants to know why does Social Security uh, give us a raise and then Medicare takes it all away? Uh, to answer that, uh, welcome Diane Archer from Just Care and Social Security Works. Thank you, Laura. Um, it's an excellent question. Um, the way it works is that um, your Social Security check increases based on uh, the uh, cost of living index, and that tends to be skewed against older people who use more health care, and that those costs tend to rise quicker than the costs of, of living for younger people. But this year, Social Security checks increased an average of $92 uh, a month. And then the Medicare Part B standard premium rose about $21 a month. So it does eat deeply into that Social Security check. You're totally right. Now, the reason why that, that premium increase was so high, though, was because the government decided to take into account the potential cost of a new Alzheimer's drug, Aduhelm, into the Medicare Part B premium. And now it's looking as if uh, that cost will not be nearly as great because the government is not going to be covering that drug um, to the extent that it, uh, initially people thought. So the premium of Medicare may come down I know Senator Sanders is working on that and maybe by as much as 10 or $11. And so that would be a little bit more uh, of your social security check that you would see. Um, but until Congress allows Medicare to negotiate drug prices and reins in the tens of billions of dollars that the government is currently overpaying the Medicare Advantage plans, um, the Medicare premiums are gonna continue to take a very large bite out of your social security check. And that's just the way the system works. And it's most unfortunate. Thanks, Diane. Our next question is from Anne, uh, who wants to know, how can we get the latest approved drugs for our conditions without paying thousands a month for them? Uh, Zoid from Health Sherpa, what do you have to say? Yeah, one of the first things I always recommend um, is looking into patient assistance programs. And these come in a few different forms. Uh, manufacturers of medications will typically have copay assistance programs. Um, and you can search for those on websites like GoodRx or medicineassistancetool.org, or honestly, sometimes if you just Google the name of the medication and assistance program, you'll find one. Um, and they, they often do this for, for newer drugs as well be, because they you know, do want consumers for their drugs. Um, those do require you having insurance, and then they will pay a portion or all of your copay. Um, and then there are other kind of 
patient assistant programs that you can find. Um, you, I always also recommend looking on needymeds.org. You can search for patient assistance programs there. Um, and then there are sometimes like nonprofit uh, mail order pharmacies that are set up specifically to help low-income consumers. Um, and some of them are also helping anyone who's experienced financial hardship because of the pandemic, which you know, is this, at this point is most of us. Um, and so they, there are different programs like that. And Diane, uh, you had some thoughts? Oh, always some thoughts, Laura. Um, on this one, um, there are about, I believe, 9 million Americans who every year get their drugs from abroad um, at you know, a tiny fraction of the cost um, that you would pay in this country. And while it is technically not legal to do so, the government has never prosecuted anybody who imported drugs for personal use from abroad. And the place you would go to check out drugs and their prices um, from verified pharmacies around the world is pharmacychecker.com. That's pharmacychecker.com. It has just about every drug available around the world that you can order by mail um, and get. Now, of course, the problem with that, and it's a big one, is that you pay out of pocket for those drugs. And that still can be a huge burden. Uh, sometimes your out-of-pocket costs will be even lower than the copay you would pay from your insurance. So it is worth checking in many instances. But if you're not going that route, you might also, in addition to everything that Zoid recommended in terms of patient assistance programs, you might contact your local federally qualified health center, or community health center, and see if there are drugs available through them um, on a sliding scale. Um, generally, uh, they charge on a sliding scale and you might be able to get drugs um, at a lower price there. Um, in addition, um, we haven't talked about Mark Cuban's new initiative. I don't know if others know about it, but he has um, a new pharmacy benefit manager of his own that's offering um, very low cost generic drugs. Um, and so you might want to check that out. It's hardly a solution to our ridiculously high priced drugs in this country, but it's something you might want to look at because he's only charging a tiny bit above the actual cost of the drug. Um, so it's, it's something to look into. But really what we need is what the Build Back Better Act had put in place, um, and, but not yet passed, which is um, drug price negotiation, so that the drugs in this country you know, cost the same as they do or about the same as they do in other. Um, and in the meantime, we should have open borders um, because the world is flat and we should be able to bring down the cost of drugs just through allowing imports of drugs in this country. Thanks. And our next question is from Joe. Uh, my friend who lives in the U.S. for about 15 years, uh, but is not a U.S. citizen, uh, has a problem on her insurance. Uh, she only has Part B. She's a legal green card holder. Uh, she's a taxpayer, owns her own home, has been here for over a decade. Uh, what can she do to uh, get access to Part A? She's about 74 and alone in the world uh, and has no cell phones. So uh, I guess Joe will relay the answer back to her. Uh, she lives in California and the costs for her pills are extremely high. Um, any advice or suggestions, Diane? Yes, I do. Um, she also, I, I believe she only has part B of Medicare, which is 
for um, medical services. She doesn't have um, Part A of Medicare, which is for all of her inpatient um, hospital care that she needs and nursing home care that she might need. Um, and so um, the issue there is that Medicare is a social insurance program. And what that means is it's an earned benefit. People who call it an entitlement really get it wrong. It's not a poor person's program. It's a program for everyone in the country, like a little bit like life insurance, you know, for anybody who pays in. And so Medicare only um, provides free, and it's not really free, uh, but um, premium free part A for people who have paid in for at least uh, 40 quarters or 10 years. And since your friend hasn't, because she's been living out of the country, um, the only way that she can get Part A of Medicare, which is kind of critical to keep her costs down, is by paying, and this is a big number, $499 a month to Medicare. Now, it's a big number. It's $6,000 a year, just shy of that. But we all know how expensive hospital care can be. So it's actually a great investment. And then the question becomes, is there a program in her state that would help pick up the cost of that? Some states do help pick up that cost, and she might qualify for even Medicaid or a Medicare savings program to help with that cost, depending upon her income and her assets. I hope that's helpful. Thanks. So can anybody buy into Medicare Part A if they don't qualify, or are there any restrictions to be able to buy in at the four ninety nine? Good question, Laura. So yes, there are a few restrictions, but I believe you know if you're a U.S. citizen, there's no restriction. Um, and if you are not, but you've been in the country, I believe legally for at least five years, um, you can legally buy in. And I should add that if you're married to somebody or were married to someone who has the um, Medicare investment, who's paid into Medicare, you can also benefit from their having paid into Medicare and get Medicare Part A that way. Also, if you've worked fewer than 40 quarters, but at least 30 quarters, so that'd be, um, what is that, five, uh, seven and a half years, um, you are able to buy Medicare Part A at lower than four and still paying. So mm -hmm. that's that's what, what the situation is now. Again, um, we believe strongly in you know a, a healthcare system that guarantees health insurance for everyone in this country free for free. We are we are rationing care based on ability to pay in this country. Thousands of people are dying unnecessarily. And um, thanks. And a question from Robert who wants to know why aren't shingles shots covered by Medicare? Uh, and Diane, well, actually, Medicare does cover shingles shots. The issue here is just to get a little into the weeds. There are four parts of Medicare. There's part A, which we just talked about, which is for inpatient care, like hospital care and nursing care, rehab services. And then there's part B, which is for doctor's services and other medical services like uh, durable medical equipment and physical therapy. And, that. and um, some drugs are covered under part B of Medicare if they need to be administered by a physician, like oncology drugs and others. Um, then there is Medicare Part C, which actually requires you to have Medicare Part A and B, and that's the private insurance side of Medicare, what's called Medicare Advantage sometimes. And then finally, 
there's Medicare Part D. And Medicare Part D is generally included as part of uh, Medicare Part C. Or if you're in traditional Medicare, which is just Parts A and B, then um, you buy it separately. And if you have Part D, whether through Medicare Advantage or through traditional Medicare, it almost always will pick up the cost. And that's a long way of explaining the complications of Medicare, but it is valuable to have Medicare Part D for lots of looting. Yes, thank you. And Zoid, how about is uh, our shingle shots covered by the Affordable Care Act? Yes, they are. So shingles vaccines are covered as a preventive service for adults 50 years and older under all the ACA plans. So if you have a qualified health plan and you are 50 or older, um, you should be able to get your shingles. No uh, thing. Uh, I heard there's good news about Medicare and COVID tests. Diane, did you hear? I did actually hear too uh, that there is a plan in place to get everyone with Medicare free COVID tests. I believe eight free tests a month. Uh, it hasn't launched yet, uh, but we will keep you up to date um, as those tests co- become available. At the moment, um, I just we should remind everyone that the Biden administration is making four tests per person available, or maybe it's per household. Maybe someone can help help me with that. Um, if you go to a, a government um, website, it's the easiest government website I've ever navigated. It took about 30 seconds to apply for my free for uh, COVID tests. Zoid, uh, do you have that uh, URL handy? Um, the URL? Yes. Yeah, I don't know if I have that one. Tests. I think it's covidtest.gov. Yes. Covidtest.gov is how you order your four free at-home tests. And it is per household, not per individual, which is uh, something that people have pointed out uh, disadvantages uh, large households. And hopefully that is being worked on, especially in terms of equity. So if you have your healthcare questions, please text or call in and we will answer in a future episode. Uh, I am now delighted to introduce our special guest, Dr. Cedric Dark, uh, who is an ER doctor and he is at Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, and he's going to talk about whether or when to go to the ER versus urgent care, um, possible billing issues and other considerations, and a bit about surprise medical billing uh, issues, the, the surprise medical billing solution that uh, went into effect this year. Uh, welcome, Dr. Dark. Thanks for having me. Um, well, the, the first thing I wanted to mention when we're talking about um, when to go to the ER, I think Zoid was talking a little bit before the show about getting bitten by um, a pet that he's uh, fostering and called the nurse line, nurse advice line recommended going to the emergency room for, for the issue. And, you know, realistically, when I was listening to the story and thought about it, I was thinking, you know what, he possibly could have even done something else like telemedicine or maybe an urgent care um, because it was a pet that didn't require getting something like rabies shots. And unless his finger was broken open to the point that it needs stitches, it might've been something that could have been handled elsewhere. Um, the problem is we don't really know when someone has an injury happen or if they're feeling something like chest pain, whether or not it's something dangerous like a heart attack or if it's something that's not that dangerous like uh, just indigestion. And so 
The first thing that tells us whether or not someone should go to an ER versus another venue for care is what we call the prudent layperson standard. And this is something that I think is really critical for people to understand because insurance companies have been out there uh, essentially trying to return money to their shareholders and not really worrying about what they're doing for their customers, which are their what I would call my patients. I don't ever call my patients customers because um, they're people that I'm caring for. But the prudent layperson standard says that if there's a medical condition that manifests itself with any kind of acute symptomatology that you know is severe enough, and this includes things like pain, um, that a quote unquote prudent layperson uh, who has sort of an average knowledge of, of health and medicine could reasonably expect um, immediate medical attention is necessary because they either think it's putting their health in, in in jeopardy or severe impairment of their bodily functions, um, or you know maybe the loss of like limb or eyesight or something like that. If those situations are met, then that person should go to an emergency department. And this is something that was codified in 1997 um, by Congress, and it's been acted upon and sort of revised over the years. Recently, in uh, the Affordable Care Act, had a version of prudent layperson in 2010 as well, which then applied to uh, the, the small group uh, and individual health plans. And then most recently, the No Surprises Act, which we can you know talk about a little bit later on, reinforced this as well. Uh, and the main thing that I really want people to know is go to the ER if you feel like something is threatening your life, your limb, your eyesight, something like that. Don't necessarily wait um, because we're here as emergency physicians to take care of, as the book says behind me, anyone, anything, at any time. We're the only place in the healthcare system open 24-7, 365, and we're happy to do that. Um, and one of the things that we saw during this pandemic, and I just saw that there was a publication came out suggesting about a million excess deaths since the pandemic started. We know that maybe about 900,000 people died from covid um, which means there was about another 100,000 people that died that didn't have COVID. And it could be because, you know, during the height of the pandemic, were people with chest pain staying at home and, and hoping it got better? Maybe they died at home from a heart attack or a stroke or some other kind of serious illness that they just didn't get taken care of. Yeah. So are there specific things you should think? So chest pains is obviously one of them that you should go to the ER instead of urgent care. Are there other things like not being able to breathe is probably another one, but uh, how are there specific warning signs to be looking for that would say you should go immediately to the ER? I mean, I think it's, it's very difficult to provide a blanket assessment of that, but obviously if someone's having severe chest pain, yes, please come in. If you're, if you're having slurred speech or weakness on one side of your body, that could mean a stroke. You should come into the emergency room because there are things that we can do that are time limited within, you know, either three or four and a half hours, sometimes maybe within 24 hours, depending on what it is, that if it is a stroke, we can intervene on. Um, and so it's very important that you do come to the ER when that happens. But the problem is even things for like chest pain, we think of that as a common symptom, um, for someone having a heart attack, but in women or in older people or in people with diabetes, those symptoms can be very different. It could be trouble breathing. It could be nausea. It could be feeling dizzy. So it, it's really difficult to say, but I think if you are feeling that bad, that you feel like your life is in danger or that something is really wrong with you, no one's going to fault you for coming to an emergency room. You know, every time someone comes to the ER, I like to thank them for coming in because it's my job to make sure that there isn't an emergency medical condition. And that's what I'm here for. Um, what we really need to be aware of is when insurance companies, on the other hand, look at 
what happened at the visit and say, oh, well, because a serious medical condition was not found, therefore, we're not going to pay the physician or we're, we're not going to you know, value the work of the emergency physician in the hospitals that are actually the ones providing the services as opposed to the people that are just shuffling money around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I faced a huge surprise medical bill when my insurance company didn't cover my first hospitalization uh, and then I had to fight it for months. So, so many people right now are uh, experiencing COVID. So if somebody is at home and they, they use an at-home test and they come in and it, it checks in positive, at what point would you recommend somebody consider going to the ER? Is it again, if they're having trouble breathing, if it's really high fever, uh, you know, how, how do you just, what do you recommend for just stay at home, wait it out versus go in for an emergency? If you're feeling sick, you think you got COVID, you take one of those home tests, and I'm so thankful that the Biden administration finally got around to sending those out to people so that people can actually just test at home and then isolate at home. Um, That's a great thing. But if you test positive, the first thing that I usually do when I see a patient, um, if they don't have a fever, if their lungs sound normal to me, and if their oxygen is normal, I don't do anything for them. I send them home and tell them to stay home, stay away from other people um, and wait your, you know, 10 days for quarantine. The CDC has changed it to five days plus maybe wear a mask at five days. I personally still tell everybody, wait the full 10 days um, at this point in time. So what I would encourage you to do, if you think you have COVID, number one, and if you test positive, number two, the first thing to do is buy a pulse ox machine. Um, And that's something that you can get from any pharmacy. It slips on your finger and it measures the oxygen in your blood. If your oxygen level is greater than 93%, you don't really need to come to the emergency department from the standpoint of getting oxygen therapy or getting any other medical therapies because we don't have anything that we would do for you in the hospital. Now, you may benefit from uh, some of the monoclonal antibodies that are out there. But again, those things are outpatient treatments and your regular doctor should be able to have access to that. If you don't have a plan for what will happen if you catch COVID, now's the time to do so. Ask your doctor, do they have a place to refer you for antibodies if you catch COVID? Or do they have access to the new pills that are out there if you catch COVID? But if you if your oxygen is high enough, there's nothing for you in the hospital that we're going to do. If your oxygen level, I tell my patients this when I diagnose them, if your oxygen level is 93 or below, that's the time to come back because then we probably would do steroids. You might do some IV medications um, in the hospital. And that's that's that, that key number for us. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, Diane or Zoid, do you have any questions? I do. So we were talking before the show about the cost of the ambulance in the emergency room and how that can be prohibitive for most people because the costs are now basically through the roof the minute you get in the ambulance, um, just prohibitive. So um, my advice to the people with Medicare is always, you know, talk to your doctor, talk to your hospital about, and your insurance company about the ambulance companies and emergency rooms that are in your network that are, that are high quality Um, and have that on your refrigerator so that if you do have an emergency, um, you minimize your out-of-pocket costs. And I think you, uh, Dr. Dark, made the excellent point that sometimes in an emergency, you just do not have time or you shouldn't be waiting for an ambulance. But in a lot of the emergencies we've just been talking about, 
they're not like, you know, they're not a stroke. They're, you know, I have COVID, what should I do? I don't feel good. Maybe my oxygen levels are seem to be falling or I have chest pain. Should I wait it out? Blah, blah, blah. So in those instances, and I do think those are the bulk of the times people um, contact the ambulance. Definitely, it's great to have ahead of time um, the uh, name of an ambulance that's in your network, your insurer network, and the name of the hospital that it's going to take you to and to be sure that that's also in the network and that it's a high quality um, emergency room. But um, we'd love to hear more from you um, on that point. Well, you're absolutely correct. Unless it's something where I think, you you know, if you think you're having a heart attack or a stroke, call 911 and take whichever ambulance to whichever hospital you can. Um, but if it's something, you know, like my dad a couple of years ago fell down the stairs and broke his ankle, um, you know, that would have been one where if, if you had the time permitting, yeah, go ahead and call the ambulance company that might take you there that you know is going to, number one, be in your network. Uh, number two, can take you to a hospital that's in your network um, as well to help minimize some of those surprise billing costs. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that you won't get stuck with a surprise bill because, you know, as we were saying before, um, the hospital is the hospital, but the people that usually work inside the hospital aren't necessarily contracted with the same insurance companies. Um, so the ER doctors might be different. The surgeons might be different. Uh, the anesthesiologist, the pathologist, the radiologist, all those different physicians might have different contracts than with insurance company A or insurance company B, even though inside the hospital, um, they, they have those things. But the nice thing with the No Surprises Act is it does take patients out of the middle of this. Um, so you shouldn't have to pay anything more now than you otherwise would for your normal in-network costs. And it allows the doctors and the insurance companies to fight it over. Um, and hopefully it'll turn out to be a much more fair process um, because me as an emergency physician, I have to take care of every single patient that shows up in front of me, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from, no matter whether or not they have insurance company A, insurance company B, or no insurance whatsoever. And I'm happy to do that because I love taking care of people without having to worry about the finances of it. But at the same time, because insurance companies realize this, they know that they don't necessarily have to pay physicians um, what we're due, what, what our value is, um, because we will see them, our patients, regardless in the setting of an emergency. And if you do wind up with those surprise medical bills, uh, you should go to cms.gov slash no surprises, and they explain the process for what to do to report and to uh, get help. Just one more addendum here. Um, I'm just realizing if you do call 911 because you've had a stroke, as I did when my mom had a stroke, um, you can then tell the ambulance that comes to your house not to go to the to the hospital they want to go to if you know that your hospital in network is as close and as reasonable a prospect. And I remember, I mean, it was insane, but I had to duke it out with the ambulance company to take my mother, not to the hospital they preferred with their name on it, but to my mother's hospital, which happened to be closer. Um, and, um, but I was successful, you know, um, so that's another way to go to save money. Don't just assume you have to go to the, to the hospital that the ambulance company wants to take you to. Mm -hmm. And there's often financial arrangements behind the scenes, the why, uh, ambulances will take you to specific hospitals and it may or may not be in your best financial interest or health interest for them. Yeah. 
So thank you very much uh, for joining us, Dr. Dark. Uh, and again, if you are watching and you have healthcare questions, be sure to call or text in those questions and we will answer those in a future episode. Thanks for listening to Care Talk. <laughs>